history of uh, a big movement that we're going through is a history of revolutions. And I've said many times in the past that most revolutions are bloodless, technically. Most are bloodless. They always, they always have bloody ones going on across the world under the guise of policing. But to be honest with you, it's, uh, most revolutions are bloodless. And they're cultural changes. That's really what they're about, changing the culture. And if you go back into the histories of the big organizations that came out just prior to the French Revolution, and they wrote about it, uh, they published a lot of the material, and then into the 1800s you find more and more published uh, works by some of the so-called revolutionaries themselves. And then towards the, the end of the 1800s, into the Marxist phase, into the, the 20th century, you find that the Fabians took over to deal with the West, the Fabian society. Now, I've always mentioned that the big revolutionaries of the past were not working people, working class people. And they were not just intelligentsia. They used intelligentsia to front for them, but they were funded by bankers, the bankers of their day. That's who funded them. Because the groups of bankers in those days had consortiums. They had cartels and monopolies. That's the only way you can grab a hold of money and keep a hold of it by keeping everybody else out. And the world they, they envisaged would be an orderly society, as orderly as bookkeeping. That's what they did do. They went to bookkeeping, profit, loss, estimated profits, etc. All that kind of stuff is done by bookkeeping. Nice and tidy, you see. And for a future where you're going to loan out money to countries that might not be able to pay you back, you have to get international laws drafted up so that whatever country they lent money to, or all countries who were in conflict with each other, regardless of who won or lost, they were guaranteed to be paid. So if you lost a war, you still have to pay off your debt. And that was all tidied up and sewn up, really, by the, the 1800s, the end of the 1800s. They had that through various leagues, they called them, Concert of Europe and different big world meetings they had. And the leaders of all the big countries and the sovereigns would sign their name down to this, these kind of ideas, these, these treaties. Then it went into the League of Nations for World War I, and then you have United Nations for the present time. And as I mentioned yesterday, and I read an article from the World Trade Organization, and Mr. Pascal Lamy talked about uh, the structures of global governance, and he refers to the fact they were set up long ago, as far back he's admitting to there, to at least World War II, the Bretton, Bretton Woods Agreement and the, the signing of the UN Treaty at the end of World War II. He refers to them as structures of global governance. But what kind of governance? Well, as I say, it was back an awful long ways. And they used the socialist movements, many uh, different types, in fact, always to confuse the issue. They have different varieties on the go at the same time, all funded from the same sources, I should say, knowing they'd bring them all together uh, at the end into a big party, you might say. And throughout the 20th century, most of Europe went through, apart from the, the big wars that they had, which again was to change culture, and that's what Professor Carl quickly said, that physical wars, the same as revolutions, obviously, are meant to also change the, the culture of opposing parties. And it does, because government expands massive, uh, massively, they create bureaucracy after bureaucracy, and they get into private affairs like private ownership or farming. They took over all those industries. And after wars, they never let those ministries, they call them ministries, 
they never let them go. They're now part of the authorities. So you've changed society and the structure of society forever. And I've been lucky enough to have lived through some of the revolutions in the 20th century. Even as a toddler, I went through the phases of so-called sexual uh, liberation. It was called a revolution, the sexual revolution. And it hit society like a ton of bricks all at once. And every major media, and being brought up in Britain, at the only time it was, the major media was the BBC. It was all getting put from the top down. No one in the BBC that worked there uh, was allowed to, to come from any school, any place but up at Eton. Eton, that's the only place to hire them from to make sure there was a class that was running the lower classes. So here's the upper class pushing all this stuff and drugs at the same time. And even the fashion, as Plato said, to everything works together, drama, fashion, movies, all at the same time pushing this, this kind of happy, crazy, uh, there's no consequences idea because they brought out the birth control pill at the same time. That's something that they lacked when they tried this before, during the 20s, the roaring 20s, when they made booze cans, a very um, nice places to visit because they were bad. They were bad for the youth, you see, and prohibition, and brought in jazz, and the miniskirt too, they tried the miniskirt too, but that all the fallouts of venereal diseases, no penicillins, um, they had massive... Um, Deaths from abortions, uh, the backstreet abortion industries, and uh, they didn't have the pill. So they would literally use the tax money of the public, and, and from the government, of course, uh, funneled it onto science to bring out something that would stop the consequences. And then they brought the whole thing back much the same, and they changed it from jazz into what they called pop music, then rock music. And everyone takes it. When you're growing up, you're young, and, and something comes along that's made to, that's aimed right at you by experts, mind you, marketing experts. You just jump into it thinking it's for you. You think, in fact, you think it is yours. And they sang songs like My Generation and stuff like that. It was all written by guys who were not members of your generation at all. That's how it's run. That's how you run culture. And we've had a lot of revolu revolutions, cultural revolutions throughout the 20th century. And they need revolutions to, to ongo. This is how they said they'd fulfill the dream of an ordered, planned society. First, to get you to literally think you're free, uh, do as you want sort of thing. Uh, but, of course, the intention was to destroy something they had to destroy, uh, that Karl Marx talked about and many others. And that was destruction of the family unit had to go. You can't have a family unit there and people standing up for one person within that family when the government's after them. It's much easier when the government comes and there's no one to stand up for anybody. You see? And that's what they've accomplished today. The family unit technically is gone. It's in its death rows. So revolutions are very successful when they're planned, well-financed, and promoted from the top down, as everything must be. Anything that came out of the blue that was not planned from the top would be immediately crushed. Because, as Plato discussed himself, uh, that any cultural changes from the bottom would cause a kind of ripple effect through society that was out of the elite's control. Therefore, it's not allowed. The greatest way, as a technique is to say, is to make the public at the bottom think it's theirs, this revolution is theirs. It works every time. And there's always uh, a political end, a socio-political end, 
that comes out of it, planned, worked out, strategized, implemented, and it works perfectly. Now we're going through this greatest corner of all, and it's called the, 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 the Green Agenda, the Green Revolution. Wherever you hear revolution coming out from mainstream, till it becomes a catchphrase, and all the media keeps using it, and all media gets their green correspondence at the same time, mind you, then you know you're going through a planned revolution. Planned. And once again, it's from the top down. The Green Revolution is a fantastic way to divert the public from their own governments. As you go down the hill, paying for it all, mind you, the governments will stand up and say, well, you see, we can't do anything about it because we all agreed that the United Nations or at the Copenhagen Treaty or whatever else is planned in the future, we all agreed, you see, to cut emissions by blah, 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 blah. So it's almost like they want you to feel sorry for them. They have no option once they've signed it all. That's how it, psychologically it takes the heat off them. And it, takes, it tends to work with the public too. There's nothing written in stone, although they want you to think that. Any treaty that's ever been made, any law that's ever been made can be torn up just like that, regardless of all the rubbish they give us. Oh, it would take years to undo, years to unravel, utter rots. All you do is you get a good wood stove, and you tear it all up and you throw it in the fire and it's gone and then you put other laws in to replace them that's what you do it's amazing how we, we go along with these rules and regulations and then the leaders of different countries I, I, I hate even calling them leaders because they're just front actors they turn around and say well the US has demanded and the people of Britain have demanded we, we demand nothing at the bottom nothing at all it's just, just a pantomime for the public. Talking about revolutions, and we have one revolution after another, but really they're all preset long ago in, in sequence how they would work. And Lenin talked about it, about services becoming authorities eventually. And we're at that stage now, and for every service, even police services, are now authorities, they're now called enforcers. But really they're supposed to be a service because they receive money from the taxpayer. They're supposed to serve the taxpayer. But we've forgotten that, you see. We've been trained to forget that, in fact. And so have the cops themselves been trained to forget that. And they get into the role of enforcing and, and bringing in cash through tickets and so on for governments. That's what they really do, is bring in cash through hand tickets out all the time. And there's always more laws put on the books every day for them to hand tickets out about. But this Green Revolution that we're going through now is the final part, because out of the Green Revolution... And all this farcical nonsense that it talks about and all its farcical excuses that it uses will change society completely. Right down to what you eat. There will be no meat eventually. That's to be phased out completely because those who designed this system a long, long time ago said that, that they would cut out meat altogether. It's much easier handling a population making them, uh, by studying different cultures and what really worked for a long time. Well, the Brahmins of India have lorded over the peasants for thousands of years by pushing vegetarianism. And you make sure then you restrict what they've given access to in, in that diet. And you, you end up with people who can work. They can't think too clearly or well. They certainly don't think about rebelling. And neither would have the energy to do it successfully. So vegetarianism is part of the deal, and all you will have eventually are the modified, genetically modified vegetables by Big Monsanto, 
with laced with all this pesticide. So it'll fulfill different roles at the same time and reduce the population by poisoning you, basically, and giving you all these cancers, which is already, already happening. It's been happening for years, in fact. And they know this at the top as well. That's why they don't eat the stuff that they make us eat at the top. And they must also bring down society. Now, you can imagine it. We've gone through, supposedly, since 9-11, uh, attacks by terrorists. Now there's terrorists across the whole planet suddenly. We, we are now under police states, basically, martial law police states across the world. And every country signed the same bills at the same time, meaning they were written up and agreed to many years in advance because governments worked very slowly. And then, of course, we had, uh, I think it was the West Nile virus was going to kill us. All that didn't happen. Then it was the bird flu was going to kill That didn't happen. And then it was this present flu, and of course the financial crash as well, that no one saw coming, apparently, and we bailed out the bankers who'd looted all our bank accounts. So, here we are in a depression, financial depression, at the end of a phase two, where the GATT treaty through the World Trade Organization uh, put all your, your factories abroad, so you're not producing productive societies anymore, you're consumer societies. So you don't bring as much money as you used to do, anywhere near what you used to do, because you don't manufacture. You give it all to China, and therefore we're at the bottom of depression, and we've been cleaned up by the banks. We've all been hit with a massive tab that will claim the firstborns of generations to come to pay off. Um, all okay by your government standards, by the way. That's all okay. While the spending on the military are like crazy, and forcing us to fork out cash to save the environment as well. Think about that. Think about that. Would that make any sense to you? Well, you see, it's an agenda. It's nothing to do with reality, the whole climate nonsense. It's an agenda. Here we are going through the, the cooling period, and they're still pushing global warming. And I said that would happen. I said, I don't care if you're standing up to your neck in snow. They'll keep pushing this global warming until they have it all signed, sealed, and delivered. Chiseled in stone. We're cutting through the matrix, talking about revolutions and how we go through one after another, all directed from the top, of course, to guide us into a new type of society. It's constantly changing. But they knew where they were going to go at the very beginning, before all the different revolutions. We're just at this present one. This is, this is the phase we're going through, this greening, greening revolutions. Everything goes green to save the world that's, that's suddenly, apparently, going to fall out of orbit. And it's all utter rubbish, but that doesn't matter because anything I'll do to get it going. And propaganda overcomes reason with most people who will not look into any other facts that are out there. Uh, in fact, they don't really care too much about facts. They just want to get on board with the majority. That's the problem with the majority. Most folk belong to the majority. And the majority is always managed by a tiny minority. They just don't know it at the bottom. But people like to be the same as everybody else. And they get on board with it. It says here, um, warning that Britain needs to step up its efforts to reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, after picking up all the low-hanging fruit, Adair Turner said radical steps were needed for electricity generation cars and homes. Now, they're going to sign this agreement. It's a done deal, as I say, uh, at Copenhagen uh, very, very shortly. And if you want to see uh, how much of a hell they can bring in, you just have to wait and see till they publish the whole thing for you. And you're going to find out then. Because it's going to come right down to population control. That's the big one too, population control. By law, forcible. That's coming, definitely. Vegetarian society, um, you won't be able to travel very far. 
because cars will be off the road. Agenda 21 at the UN uh, signed years ago what is, is, will kick right in there totally, completely. And uh, you'll be stuck in a certain area, basically, without special permits to travel outside of them because they cannot have uh, people traveling all over the place in a totalitarian world. It doesn't work too well. Essentially, the government has pledged to cut carbon emissions by 34% from their 1990 levels by 2020, but slipped off course during the economic boom earlier this decade. I wonder when that was. When we get the figures for 2008 to 2009, we may look to be on target, but only because we have had a thumping recession. They don't really call it a depression. They call it recessions, you see. Lord Turner said, there's a danger of the government saying, look, we can't, we are, we're back on target. We were back on target for the worst possible reason. He said that the UK had made pretty rapid progress on cutting emissions during the dash for gas in the 1990s, but had not maintained the progress during this decade. So tough decisions were now needed, he says. It's just amazing. You put these characters in a, in a role, and they all have love role-playing. And they can move them around from, from area to area. They can be a ministry for the environment one, one year and, and ministry from welfare the next year and ministry for, for something else the next year. And they're sudden experts, you see, because they, they read their lines very well. What, what am I today, boss? And it, well, you're going to be the Minister for Environment. Okay. And they hand this little prescripted stuff to read. It, it, this is how it works in every country. It's all a farce. We're living through a script. The whole planet's living through scripts all the time. And they don't know it. They haven't a clue. Very, very few people ever, ever live in reality. If you do, you better be a very good actor because the rest will turn on you when you come up with odd statements, odd to them, that is. He's weird. He thinks. Mm. And he made an awful lot of trouble. And we always take the farces too, like as I was mentioned the other day about soldiers and wars and how they love the propaganda. It's good enough for them. And young guys really, they're too immature to think too deeply about things. They certainly don't think about death for themselves, that is. It's impossible when you're young. You're going to live forever. In fact, you're never going to get old. That's how young people think. That's why they hire young people to go into the military. Older folk generally have a bit more sense. ExxonMobil, or Mobile, ExxonMobil led consortium the Nets, the supergiant Iraq oil fields. Now, if you remember back in the uh, Iraq pounding, the so-called... Um, policing effort for the war with Iraq and people said at the time oh they're going to go for the oil and that they said oh no no it's really to get a bad man out of the way and all that nonsense but remember they bombed all the refineries and it was American newspapers at the time that uh, from statements by the Air Force that uh, they were told to bomb the refineries and the reason apparently was that uh, they were old and antiquated not very efficient and the idea was that after the war, the American taxpayer would fund the building of new refineries. Well, it's all been done now, you see. <clears throat> Thanks to the taxpayer, as always. And now that they're handing it out, the spoils of war, out to their pals. So ExxonMobil led consortium net supergiant Iraq oil fields. And this is from the Daily Star, Friday, November the 6th. It says... Uh, the consortium uh, has beaten rival Russian, French, and Chinese groups to bag initial rights to develop Iraq's West Korna field, the oil ministry said. 
adding momentum to Iraq's bid to unlock its oil riches. With reserves of 8.7 billion barrels, West Kurna is amongst the prized Iraqi fields eyed by Western oil majors as they face flat or lower output at home and stiff competition from Chinese and Indian oil companies in bidding for oil fields elsewhere. The consortium led by ExxonMobil, which includes Shell, won the contract to develop West Corner Phase 1 oil field, oil ministry spokesman Asim Jihad said. Initial deal was signed in Baghdad on Thursday, but needs cabinet approval before it can be finalized. The 20-year contract is part of a raft of deals. What how they say it? It's floating. It's a raft of deals Iraq is close to formalizing in a bid to catapult itself to the world's largest third oil producer after decades of war and economic decline. So they're, they're going to continue to loot uh, those countries. They're not going to get profit in Iraq. Uh, but what changes, eh? Since there's no guarantee that Iraq's next government to be elected January will honor the deals, well, it will be it's the same type of government as, the, as it put in before. But it injects optimism into prospects for Iraq's battered oil sector and a second oil bid round in December after a lackluster June auction. So ExxonMobil partnering Royal Dutch Shell beat Russia's Lukoil, which had teamed up with U.S. oil major ConocoPhillips and two other groups led by France's Total and China's CNPC. So there you go. That's the spoils of war, you see. So it's geopolitical and it's also economic. Uh, I remember the movie years ago with Robert Redford. I think it was uh, Day of the Condor, it was called. And uh, the whole movie at that time, done back in the late 60s, maybe early 70s, was about the, these, these war games ongoing all the time with the CIA on uh, having to eventually go into the Middle East by force under different guises to, to grab oil uh, for themselves for the future. And here we are living through it, quite something. But what changes, eh? What changes? Now, I can remember Maggie Thatcher talking about... Uh, in her World Order, New World Order series, lecture series, and she spoke at Massey Hall in Toronto. Uh, that was about oh, 10 years before the eventually went into Iraq the second time. And she said the next war will be on religious fundamentalism. At that time, no one understood it. She said, well, what was she talking about? She's going to go after Mennonites or something? Or what is this? But we know today what it is because uh, they, they definitely are stamping out the last vestiges of religions, especially those that try, whose, whose religion happens to be their culture, such as the Islamics. But it's a very selective, it's a very selective uh, war, isn't it, on fundamentalism. This article here is from the Israeli newspaper, it's called the Haaretz, and it's from the, it's the 10th to 18th, this is, or I think you're 2009, 9th to 11th, 2009. West Bank Rabbi has given a book out now, he's written a book and it says, it says in it, Jews can kill Gentiles who threaten Israel now listen to this fundamentalism here, just weeks after the arrest of alleged Jewish terrorist Yaakov Titel, a West Bank rabbi on Monday released a book giving Jews permission to kill Gentiles who threaten Israel Rabbi Yitzhak Shapiro who heads the old Yosef Chai Yeshiva and the Yitzhar settlement, wrote in his book The King's Torah that even babies and children can be killed if they pose a threat to the nation. You can understand if when you're brought up with the Talmud and you believe in it, uh, why 
they do things like Gaza, because they're also getting rid of generations to grow up who aren't yet a threat, but they're, they're going to be possibly a threat. See? Shapiro based the majority of his teachings on passages quoted from the Bible, to which he adds his opinions and beliefs. He says it's permissible to kill the righteous among nations, even if they are not responsible for the threatening situation. He wrote, adding, if we kill a Gentile who has sinned or has violated one of the seven commandments, what they mean by that is the Noahide laws uh, that, we, that the Gentiles are supposed to follow. Seven Noahide laws. Uh, if they break any of them, they're supposed to be killed. And Ronald Reagan signed that into law for the U.S., by the way. Look it up in Wikipedia. It says here, if we kill a Gentile who has sinned or has violated one of the seven commandments, because we care about the commandments, there's nothing wrong with the murder. Several prominent rabbis, including Rabbi Yitak Ginsburg and Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, have recommended the book to their students and followers. And then it goes on to give uh, related articles, uh, cases of Jewish terrorist Yaakov Tito and Mir Amshalom, bears striking resemblances. These are terrorists within Israel itself. They're killing Arabs by getting on buses and shooting them down, stuff like that. So I guess the war on fundamentalism is a very selective war when this can be printed here. And people can publish books on killing Gentiles and, and their children. And, and the world will be silent, as everyone knows. The world will be silent on this, as always. I had no problem looking at Saddam Hussein when we're told to look at, oh, he's a bad man. Let's get rid of Saddam Hussein. And that's what George Bush said during the inquest on the war in Iraq, after it was all done, he says, I didn't say that he was responsible for 9-11, which was a lie. He, they showed you clips on TV after that response to show him saying it over and over and over again. He said, I just, I just uh, said that Saddam Hussein was a bad man and the world was better off without him. That's good enough for the public, though. And when the public are told to go off and fight another war somewhere else, they'll fall for the next spiel of propaganda. Quite willingly, too. And because it's always over there, isn't it? You know, it's that almost all the news you get is somewhere else. Somewhere so far out of your ken that it's almost like, like a battle's on a planet outside the universe somewhere that you, you probably will never visit. So it doesn't affect you. And that's how most of the news now is today, isn't it? Because it's all international news. Meanwhile, you'll never know what's going on in your own area. What's really going on in your own area. It's a great trick too, isn't it? You know, there are provinces in Canada that don't know what's happening in, in the next province or across Canada in different provinces. Same in the States. Another trick. But we can hear what's happening to, to, to certain, certain women and tribes in Africa, can't we? Uh, boy, what a world. Talking about the, the war that's always going on and the war to which most folk are oblivious, most of the average person, uh, they're oblivious to what's really happening. Uh, and there's always a struggle going on between those who hold power and really to, the struggle is only about them maintaining power. That's the only struggle is between themselves to maintain and extend their power. In the 1800s and into the early 1900s, right up into and beyond World War One, the societies in every country had really, really the, the societies that came out of the feudal system. And people technically whether we're called serfs or not, behaved just like serfs. If they got any education at all, it was of the lowest quality to make sure they could just read and write and uh, sign guilty on the Queen's 
uh, uh, warrants or whatever. And, um, and that was about it. But to convince the world that this Western society, this democracy was the way to go, they had to show to the world the pretense of freedom. And they gave one generation, one generation, the appearance that they were actually free and could go wherever they wanted to go, could mouth off when they wanted to mouth off about certain things. And now that's all been taken back because, you see, the Norman Dodd and the Rees Commission they had back in the 1950s when they talked to the big tax-exempt foundations that were funding all the supposed left-wingers and communist societies admitted to Senator Dodd that their job was to change the culture so much in the West that eventually they'd merge it seamlessly with the Soviet Union, a Soviet-type system. You team that up with the Club of Rome, the premier think tank as it boasts to the world for the United Nations, and they said that of all the systems they, they viewed and studied collectivism or the collectivization of the systems were, were the ones that were most promising, meaning a form of communism. It's now called governance, where you simply obey when the guy in the uniform uh, tells you to obey, or else. And they mean or, or else. They aren't pussy putting around with you anymore. That's why police across the Western Hemisphere are allowed to just taser people uh, that at one time would have simply been grabbed by some big, tough cop. Now they just taser you because they like a bit of torture and they like to watch you squirm, urinate and defecate in front of them and maybe even die and turn blue. It was all very colorful for them as they kill you. We're in a different time now, completely different time, and these boys all know they'll be given authority from the top to do exactly what they're doing. They've also bred a generation on video games, and the only object of the game is to come through after killing as many as possible, so they either go into the military or the police. And they've given that cult, that particular generation, the most debased, completely debased culture of any generation to date. And then you find uh, this PR piece, and it's definitely a PR piece by the Times Online on the actor uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it says here, November 16th, Arnold Schwarzenegger visits Iraq and aims to transfer, transfer the military tactics to California that they use on the people in, in Iraq. You know, where they go out there and just round a bunch of folk up, bring them in and torture them, whether they know anything or not. That's literally what they were doing. And, it, and then they give you this PR piece, like it's a big, the big you know, TV character, not a, not a real person. The governor of California trots out his most famous one-liner wherever he goes, but the Victory military base in Baghdad today, he apparently meant it. He says, I'll be back. I'm surprised he managed to say that. Uh, it says, it's, it, after working out with a group of American soldiers on active duty in Iraq, all with necks and trunks as thick as his, I doubt it because he was on masses of steroids. You know, that's why his brain is so small. But uh, I'm reading an article here about Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a public relations thing, of course. And it says here that um, uh, the Muslim man who rose to Hollywood fame as a Terminator came to the site of America's bloodiest war in a generation to cheer up the troops but also because there are important lessons to be learned here. Mr. Schwarzenegger said he wants to study counterinsurgency strategies developed by the U.S. military when Iraq was on the brink of civil war and bring them back to the mean streets of California, 
where criminal gangs rule entire neighborhoods, especially in large cities. Already police officers in some parts of the state are attempting to copy the hard-won lessons that helped to calm down the western Iraq city of Fallujah. That's when they, you know, they bombed it and strapped it from the air to pieces. And the Triangle of Death sound south of Baghdad, where insurgents once reigned openly. It's amazing, again, how again, people don't really perceive things as things really are. Anyone who is standing up for their country is called an insurgent. It doesn't sound like a patriot, you see. And it all depends on how it's given to the public. And they always respond in the usual way, thinking, well, I guess that's like a foreigner or something, an insurgent. Well, even the Vietnamese were called insurgents in Vietnam. And in World War II, they actually set up teams to keep uh, sort of uh, terrorist attacks going against the Germans if the Germans actually invaded Britain successfully. What would they call them? British insurgents? I mean, it's, it's all nonsense. People who are defending their country are generally called patriots. I mean, that's the fact. Anyway, it says, instead he heard about their work on the safe environs of one of the largest U.S. bases in Iraq and shook hands with them afterwards. He also held meetings with the senior commanders. The transfer of counterinsurgency tactics from the military to the police is being pioneered in the central Californian town of Salinas. Combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan are already advising the local authorities on how to conduct their own surge, as the U.S. counterinsurgency campaign of President Bush is known. Now, I've always said, the big eating machine that's over there, and you just chomp away at your french fries or your chips or whatever you chew on, and we'll come back home, and that's exactly what's happening here. They always call them when they're abroad advisors, these guys that train and, and uh, these teams uh, of hitmen abroad. But now here you have them back home again advising governors, state governors, on how to conduct their business at, at the ground level in their own countries. It says rather than hunting down gang leaders and arresting them, the police are told to build trust in the community that supports the gangs. Only by patiently draining the swamp can the leaders be eliminated. I like their terminology, eh? It's right from the movies. Draining the swamp, eliminated, blah, blah. There are apparently striking similarities between Iraq and California. Many gang members and supporters see police officers as an occupying force, similar to a foreign military presence. Like in Baghdad, there are also language problems, plus your forced multiculturalism. Officers speak English and locals often Spanish, making cooperation in criminal investigations difficult, even when citizens are willing. Then it goes on and on about uh, the problems in California. So here they are bringing in uh, military advisors. Uh, now, you can understand what the military is. The military is there to kill people. That's what military are all about, not to police anybody. Not to police them. Now, this whole farce of uh, global warming is so beautiful, really, because, remember, the Club of Rome is the organization that, that was given the task of finding a way to unite the planet, get everybody working together along a common agenda, a new uh, paradigm of belief for the age, you might say. And they said that the people only go along with something when it's a warfare scenario. You accept rationing, you accept authority from the top. You accept intrusion, you accept ration cards and ID cards and all the rest of it, and travel passes, all that kind of stuff. So they said this would bring in a war-type scenario, and the war would be 
uh, about the people on the the people were the enemy in other words of the planet that's what they came up with they said the idea of global warming famine uh, and the like uh, would fit the bill and that was chiseled in stone and I don't care if you're up to your eyes in snow they're not going to change that plan they'll stop talking about it once they pass all the laws and so on and get what they want they won't need it anymore just like the war on Iraq or 9-11 happening that 9-11 had to happen to kick off this, this century with this big plan the new American century it's not going to be American at all because America has to get finished off financially, economically and brought down to third world status as it, as it finishes off paying and policing the rest of the world and bringing them under the standardized global system I've said that for years and that's what's happening right now it's interesting to go into the topics that become popular because all topics eventually that were given are meant to become popular and that's when you realize you're in the thick of a battle they only become popular when the big plays are going on at the top levels and at the moment there's a global warming it's interesting it comes to a head and, and so much is exposed just a couple of weeks before uh, the world is to basically be signed under a new priesthood of the global warming scientists basically and, and the cartels that are backing them up and we've got to be very very careful of what's really supposed to come out of this it isn't just to do with uh, money for scientists who are certainly benefiting like never before from a theory but it's also a religion and a cause a social cause it's a substitute to bring the world under a world of socialism where scientists of all kinds will be the front men that will give us theories on behalf of those that are their masters and how to guide the world they couldn't do it through communism they've had a hard time through socialism as it presently stands so they're bringing it out under a new guise and that's really what the warming's about when you go into the writings of people like Maurice Strong and these guys from way way back you see how Maurice Strong was picked up in fact by Rockefeller when he was a youngster and groomed for his position and really became a technocrat and that's what Carl Quigley called these people like the Brzezinski's and the Kissinger's and the Maurice Strong's they're technocrats they work behind the scenes Quigley said they have more power than any politician, prime minister or president. They know it. Uh, they don't get the public uh, applause, but they do the real work. What they do is go around talking at world meetings. Organizations are started all over the, the world, and they become the prime speakers to promote causes. Talking about how big things are presented to the public at the last moment, as always, and many powers come into play, different sides of different things, but very often, too, is different sides of the same thing, or in the same boat, you might say, because it's like when they put up the gas prices, the gasoline prices, uh, by some 20 cents a litre in Canada, for instance. That's not unknown to happen here quite often. And uh, sometimes more than 20 cents, 30, 40 cents has been it sometimes. And then they drop it down by... 10 or 15 and people breathe a sigh of relief thinking oh thank god you know but they're still paying way too much more than they did before the price increase but that's how human psychology works and they know this at the top and in marketing too well it's the same thing when big ploys come into play at the top political ploys 
especially on a global agenda now as we see, because everything now is global. And we're, we've been going through the birth pangs for years and years and years of this global agenda to bring the world under one system. And it was decided at the time, decided by a combination of people in the Royal Institute of International Affairs and CFR, and many of them were communists. It didn't matter, as quickly said, if you're a communist, socialist, uh, whatever, uh, they'd accept you. And even dictators got into it as members. They didn't care, as long as they get everybody on board with the same agenda. But they all agreed they wanted to control society. A society where reason would come to the fore instead of religion, although they would create a, a religion uh, to guide the people through into the beginnings of it. A sort of earth-based religion, as, as we well know now, and that came out at, at uh, later discussions, and international discussions. Gorbachev himself said we have to create an earth-type religion to bring the people into this plan and to get them to accept it. But the same thing will probably come out of Copenhagen where they're pushing for incredible reductions on all energy output. That's really how they're figuring this strange equation, uh, energy output or energy be used into carbon uh, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, this um, this is as good an excuse as any to get what they want to happen. But the cost of the general public is to be incredible, but it's also to bring us into a deeper crisis where they'll say with the bank, um, the, the pre-planned bank collapses and everything else and the bailouts and all tie in together as we get poorer and poorer, they'll tell us there's got to be another way. Well, of course, the other way was already tabled on the books a long time ago, and out it will come after getting dusted off, and they'll give us this new, this new combination of uh, socialism and capitalism, where massive bureaucracies and uh, government departments will run every facet of the individual's lives. Plus, and I'm kidding you not, one of their main goals is to bring down drastically the amounts of human beings on the planet, especially the types that they think are now obsolete, which is anything beneath themselves at the top. The useless eaters, as Lord Bertrand Russell called them, because they knew that in a post-industrial society where China was planned to be set up as a manufacturer for the planet, you'd have all these people still consuming and eating and all the rest of it. Uh, taking away the resources of what should rightfully be the elites, the ones who are more evolved than all the rest, so that they and their children can go off into some brave new world scenario or off into the stars and all this kind of stuff. So we've got to be careful when uh, we see the big fights going on. It's excellent that so much stuff has been exposed, but don't hold your breath because uh, these guys are not going to stop now and say, yeah, we did it, we conned you all. Uh, please forgive us. That's not going to happen. The agenda is too big. So many of it uh, is already implemented through governmental bills and laws and regulations. They have uh, climate counselors on pretty well every government department now. It's appointed there as advisors. So they're not going to just give up an old, old plan because a few of their, their people were caught scamming and fed, fudging all the figures is too important for that and so much money is involved and plus they've got a whole new system of taxes and a whole new stock market on carbon uh, trading uh, to benefit from so they're not going to just let this pass away so don't believe uh, that suddenly 
you're going to get them coming on, onto their knees and admitting they were wrong and asking for forgiveness. That will not happen. Will not happen. And what they might do at this Copenhagen meeting is exactly like the, the conflict with the gasoline charges. Uh, they'll say, well, we're going to do this and, and tax you 40% on everything you purchase. But we decided actually to do it as starting off at 5 or 10% on every item. It'll be something like that they'll come out with. And we'll all say, oh, thank God. And uh, then can go on and up, up it the next time they meet with amendments. That's how it works in the real world. As I say, even before the Club of Rome came up with the idea, when they were given the job of finding a way to unite the whole planet under a threat scenario, like a war-type scenario with a common enemy, even before that, going back into the late 1800s, they were talking about catastrophes, man-made catastrophes, and what happens if the, the ordinary folk breed out of hand, as they said. We find uh, people who are propagandists for the big institutes, the royal institutes, uh, in World War I, at the end of World War I, saying, well, we haven't killed enough off, meaning all the millions that got killed off in World War I, slaughtering each other, uh, they said not enough have died and the folk haven't given up their sovereignty uh, so we've got to have another war so they did have another war and at the end of that he said we'll need another one he said folks still weren't giving up their sovereignty this is an agenda an old agenda this article here confirms some of the things I put out years ago on the first global revolution the book put out by the founders of the Club of Rome it was printed in 1991 but in the book they mentioned that in it was the early 70s I think 72 they came up with the idea because they were given the task to find a reason to unite the world they came up with, with the, the need to find out a reason the public would believe to come together and sacrifice themselves as in a time of war this is what they said this is what they said here from the book and this was in Time magazine April 1977 1977, the first global revolution. The need for enemies seems to be a common historical factor toward governments. Some states have striven to overcome domestic failure and internal contradictions by blaming external enemies. The ploy of finding a scapegoat is as old as mankind itself. When things become too difficult at home, divert attention to adventure abroad. Bring the divided nation together to face an outside enemy either a real one or else one invented for the purpose. That's page 71 of the first global revolution. One invented for the purpose. And then they go on, because remember, their task was to find a way to unite humanity by looking at all these factors that brought humanity together, generally under warfare scenarios. And they said this, in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution... We came up with the idea, I'll repeat that for the hard of thinking, that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like, would fit the bill. This is their words on page 75 of their book. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together, because they already had this as an idea behind the scenes. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it's only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. 
The real enemy then is humanity itself. That's on page 75 of the first global revolution. And that's only one part of one book, of one major think tank that works for the United Nations that has the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But these are the guys who came up with the idea for them. As I say, this whole uh, build-up has been massive. Incredible money went into creating, over the last oh, 60 years, the idea that science should eventually take over where general politicians and parties and so on uh, would leave off because they knew darn well that eventually they were blending the Sovietized system, the socialism, with uh, capitalism. Uh, it's no surprise to many of us who studied history to see that Sovietization process was completely funded by the Western capitalists because they had to get an antithesis that brings out the synthesis, which is a, a combination of the two of them. And if you go into the, speech, the speeches by Gorbachev at world meetings, and I have some here, we'll read tonight, but he actually goes into that. He says, I won't debate whether capitalism is, is, merits more than, than, uh, than socialism. He says, we're beyond that, we're global citizens now. And that was also what came out of the Rees Commission, the job of, and the Rees Commission was back in the 1950s, a con congressional inquiry into the big foundations and why they were funding what appeared to be communist and all the left-wing movements. Uh, and these foundations were owned by the biggest bankers and industrialists in the world and the capitalist world. And then they were told by the CEOs of some of the, the, the foundations like Ford that their job was to change the culture so much in the West, especially in America, that we could eventually blend seamlessly with that of the Soviet Union. Well, that's a, a fait accompli that's been done and uh, the society in the West has been so degraded by Hollywoods and all their own major medias, internal medias. The BBC did a darn good job in Britain of uh, destroying the culture, destroying the morality, destroying everything that bounds a culture together. And that's part of a war process. You must destroy all that was that kept folk together and make them stand up as one, which is a survival instinct. It's a collective survival instinct. Well, you bring in uh, hedonism, exactly as Bertrand Russell said, we create a form of hedonism and narcissistic behavior, then people are interested in themselves alone and they won't bind together. Uh, the different things that make communities stick together, such as helping the elderly in their, in their areas and feeding them too, uh, before the need or the created need for social services to take over that, um, kept folk together. Everyone knew everyone else and helped each other out. I can remember in Britain too, uh, it was hard enough at one point many years ago to get even the rent money together. That was a common thing. They didn't have credit systems for people who didn't own any property. You couldn't get a bank loan. Everything you bought and young, uh, my people bought was second hand and you paid that up on what they called tick. Tick was a, uh, you paid so much per, per week by a guy who came to the door. But there was no credit cards. And often neighbors would help other neighbors. It was very, very common to pay the rent that week. That was, that was Britain before the credit cards were made uh, available to everybody. So they also looked after themselves. They didn't need all the governmental agencies to take care of their areas and their community. Everyone knew each other. It was a necessity. 
that the whole idea of attacking the culture meant that government agencies would come in and take over uh, all those different functions that families and communities did for themselves. And then those services became authorities. And then the federal agency would back it up by laws on everyone, giving them ultimate authority, which takes all authority and right to do for yourself away from you and yours and your family and your neighborhood and all the rest of it. That's a cultural war. It's an attack on your culture. Well planned, written about again back in the early 1900s. And even uh, you find uh, Stalin talked about it before him, before him, Lenin as well. That's what they would do by the creation of services that would become authorities. The Washington Times, Friday, December the 4th, says global warming theology, something I said a long time ago. It's amazing what comes out there eventually when you think that everyone's ignoring what you're saying. They're not at all. They're, they're taking notes for the future. But it says here, Belief in global warming has long had a tinge of theology about it, a form of cultism that adherents and defenders elevate to a holy crusade. Any who questioned the orthodoxy were branded as heretics. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that climate change skepticism is treason and exhorted that we need to start treating skeptics as traitors. That's a fact what he said, in 2007, the Weather Channel's Heidi Cullen said that meteorologists who were skeptical of man-made global warming should be decertified. You see how tolerant these uh, people are, you know, these liberals? The emails from the University of East Anglia's Climate Research Unit reveal systemic uh, or systematic attempts by high priests of this religion to silence scientists who disputed their rigged findings. The purveyors of global warming theology certainly benefited, enjoyed professional success, received millions of dollars in grants, had influence in policy circles, were invited to international conferences, and found personal validation and fame. Never before had it been sexy to have climate scientists on your resume. And that's true. Who wanted to talk to a weather guide before? Back with more after this break. Reading an article from Washington Times about global warming theology but it says here that proper science unlocks secrets it doesn't create them the scientific method is a social enterprise and requires openness to function properly data must be freely available and methodologies subject to strict scrutiny in order to assess whether results can be verified reproduced and subjected to reliability tests there's no reason to trust any results based on hidden data and some very good reasons to distrust them. This is the gist of a prospective lawsuit against NASA. You think in NASA, see, all the biggies are involved in this, this big con. This is this lawsuit against NASA by Christopher C. Horner of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, which calls on the space agency to produce the climate data it has been keeping under wraps. These data are not classified information and should be part of the public record. NASA's stonewalling is suspicious and could augur that another scandal is brewing. Global warming was an academic Ponzi scheme. Its leading proponents were many Madoffs peddling a vision of global catastrophe to gullible activists, bureaucrats, and policymakers. The vision was so vast, the fears inspired so pervasive that it seized popular imagination, aided by hucksters like former Vice President Al Gore and his science fiction feature film, An Inconvenient Truth. But like any Ponzi scheme, global warming only worked if everyone kept investing and no one looked at the books. 
once the truth came out of manipulated findings, phony data, rigged peer view processes and intimidation of skeptics, the scheme began to collapse. Yet even as the edifice comes down, the adherents of the orthodoxy say that there is nothing to see. This is all a distraction from the business at hand and that there's still no time to lose. And it's true. It's true that even Al Gore today came out and says, oh, panic, 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 we've got to get this Copenhagen Treaty signed and all the rest of it. But if you, you think that NASA's not involved, there's far more on NASA out there too. Far more on NASA. Uh, NASA, for instance, has a, the guy James Hansen at the top of it. Uh, it says here, NASA's James Hansen and 28 activists arrested protesting mountaintop mining. You think he's just an uh, a sort of innocent bystander who's just doing his job for NASA? No, this guy is a true believer in all this stuff, and his job is to help promote the cause, the belief system. I'll put these links, remember, up on my website at the end of the, the show. But um, it says here, it's by Stacey Morford, 23rd of June, 2009, as was. NASA's chief climate scientist, James Hansen, put it all on the line today to call attention to the devastation of mountaintop mining, getting arrested along with actress Daryl Hannah, Rainforest Action Network director Mike Brun, and 26 other activists in a protest at West Virginia's Coal River Valley. The group had led a rally at the Marsh Fork Elementary School in the shadow of a coal silo, then marched 300 yards to a mountaintop mining site run by coal giant Massey Energy. I'm not a politician, he says. I'm a scientist and a citizen, Hansen said from the rally. Politicians may have to advocate for halfway measures if they choose, but it's our responsibility to make sure our representatives feel the full force of citizens who speak for what is right, not what is politically expedient. Mountaintop removal, providing only a small fraction of our energy, should be abolished, he says. Then he goes on and on and on. So yeah, no wonder they're fudging stuff and hiding stuff at NASA too. You see? Uh, they're all in and out of the big boys at the top. Be surprised. And it's not just about saving energy and, and saving the forest and saving... These guys want most of us off of the face of the planet. They've come out with data and figures of how much they want the world to be reduced by. Of course, they themselves won't be reduced because they're the elite. They're, the scientific. they're better than you. They're, they've got better breeding better genes and the proof is in their academic qualifications you see but you should all go at the bottom all you guys, you poor saps out there that fund all this through your taxes you're the ones that should go quite something, quite something remember that all the big boys, all the big boys that that now own the entire world's food supply are in on, on all this kind of stuff they're all in on it together. So you better think about that. When five giant international corporations pretty well own the entire world's food supply, and they've said over and over at the United Nations that food has always been used as a weapon in the past, and they could use it again. We saw them using food as a weapon on Iraq. They call it embargoes. They don't like calling it starving people to death. They call it embargoes. They're doing the same thing with Iran now. You think they won't do it on you to get their way? To teach you the big lesson? Boy, those who don't know or read their history tend to repeat it. Ain't that for sure? Now, let's 
not forget that another part of this whole big puzzle, and that's the war on terror. I call it the war of terror. Our life has been changed completely since 2001. And one of the big boys said that when it happened, right after it happened and the towers were hit, he said, life is never going to be the same again. What did he know that we didn't know? Because for all the, the, the incredible bills and laws that were passed across the planet at the same time with the anti-terrorism bills and so on, and the complete surveillance of everyone on the planet, this is much more than an, an overreaction. This never happened in Pearl Harbor. And supposedly it's, it's a small group of people hiding out in caves in Afghanistan. All this rubbish was trotted out to the general public because after all, it doesn't matter what you swallow at the time. It's as long as you allow them to get what they want to, to, to start rolling on the go. And that's what it was. It was bringing in a whole new world system for the century of change. We must never, ever forget that. A planned society. The global warming uh, is just a part of it to bring in the planned society. The war on terror is another one. Why did every media across the planet, television media, go to the man and the woman in the street immediately after the towers came down and said, would you give up all your freedoms for security? Every country went into the same act at the same time on their media. Why was that? That was to get it through our idea, our heads. Uh, that something we'd never even thought of before. Most folk hadn't even thought about it. Why should you even think about that? Why would you give up all your, your freedoms for security when, you see, your freedoms are your security? It's your freedoms that protect you from your governments. And they've pretty well taken all our rights away from us. Everyone has been spied on. And they gave us a computer too long ago. And Brzezinski said it before we were given the computer, when he said a new form of um, communication will be shortly given to the general public to bring in, he says, a, a common culture across the world and also enable security data to be collected on everyone. That was in one of his books back in the 70s, early 70s. And what's happened since then? Here we are, all using the darn thing, and folk are putting everything up and sending emails about personal things to everyone else, and it's all been collected. And they, they know that now, and, and guess what? They don't care. This article is from wired.com. It says, Yahoo, Verizon, our spy capabilities would shock, confuse consumers. December the 1st, 2009. Want to know how much phone companies and internet service providers charge to funnel your private communications or records to U.S. law enforcement and spy agencies? This goes for, for every other country as well. And we were all told recently, too, that, oh, they're so reluctant to have to turn over um, all your data to the agencies when asked. Well, they never mentioned they were getting paid big bucks for it. But this article here talks about that. That's a, a question muckraker and Indiana University graduate student Christopher Sagoan asked all he asked all agencies within the Department of Justice under a Freedom of Information Act request filed a few months ago, but before the agencies could provide the data, Verizon and Yahoo intervened and filed an objection on grounds that, among other things, they would be ridiculed and publicly shamed were their surveillance price sheets made public. Yahoo writes in its 12-page objection letter, and a link to that letter is actually here too, it's a PDF form says that if its pricing information were disclosed to Sagoan, 
he would use it to shame Yahoo and other companies and to shock their customers. Therefore, release of Yahoo's information is reasonably likely to lead to impairment of its reputation for protection of user privacy and security, which is a competitive disadvantage for technology companies, the company writes. Verizon took a different stance. It objected to the release. Another PDF here gives you Verizon's objection of its law enforcement legal compliance guide because it might confuse customers and lead them to think that records and surveillance capabilities available only to law enforcement would be available to them as well, resulting in a flood of customer calls to the company asking for trap and trace orders. Customers may see a listing of records, information, or assistance that is available only to law enforcement, Verizon writes in this letter, but call into Verizon and seek those same services. Such calls would stretch limited resources, especially those that are reserved only for law enforcement agencies. Other customers, upon seeing the types of surveillance law enforcement can do, might become unnecessarily afraid that their lines have been tapped, or call Verizon to ask if their lines are tapped. A question we cannot answer, meaning them, the callers. Verizon does disclose a little tidbit in its letter saying that the company receives tens of thousands of requests annually for customer records and information from law enforcement agencies, and they're getting paid for every darned one of them. Sogin filed his records request to discover how much law enforcement agencies and thus U.S. taxpayers are paying for spy documents and surveillance services with the aim of trying to deduce from this how often such requests are being made. Tycone explained in his theory on his blog, his blog is called Slight Paranoia, in the summer of 2009 I decided to try and follow the money trail in order to determine how often internet firms were disclosing their customers' private information to the government. I theorized that if I could obtain the price list of each ISP, detailing the price for each kind of service, and invoices paid by the various parts of the federal government, then I might be able to reverse engineer some approximate statistics. In order to obtain these documents, I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with every part of the Department of Justice that I could think of. The first DOJ agency to respond to his request was the U.S. Marshals Service, which indicated that it had had price lists available for Cox Communications, Comcast, Yahoo, and Verizon. But because the company voluntarily provided the price list to the government, the FOIA allows the companies an opportunity to object to the disclosure of their data under various exemptions. Comcast and Cox were fine with the disclosure, Tokian reported. He found that Cox Communications charges $2,500 to fulfill a pen registered trap and trace order for 60 days and $2,000 for each additional 60-day interval. It charges $3,500 for the first 30 days of a wiretap. These are one wiretaps, right? And $2,500 for each additional 30 days. 30 days worth of a customer's call detail records costs $40. Comcast's pricing list, which was already leaked to the Internet in 2007, indicated that it charges at least $1,000 for the first month of a wiretap and $750 per month thereafter. But Verizon and Yahoo took offense at the request. Yahoo objected on grounds that its pricing constituted confidential commercial information and cited Exemption 4 of the Freedom of Information Act and the Trade Secrets Act. Exemption 4 of the FOIA refers to disclosure of commercial or financial information that could result in a competitive disadvantage to the company if it were publicly disclosed. So that's what they're using. Well, if our other companies know what we're charging, 
uh, what well, it's a competitive disadvantage. This is the excuses are given. Rather than tell the public, not only are they taking all your info and selling it to all these agencies, they're wiretapping you when required by these agencies as well and getting paid big bucks for doing so. This is the real world we live in, eh? This is the new freedom, the new freedom that Mr. Bush talked about. And no one asked him in the media, uh, please define new freedom, because he was giving you a legality. The new freedom, it was like the new deal. The new deal was a whole new way, apart away from the Constitution of the United States. It goes in every year and out the other, you know. This article here is from Los Angeles Times, how things are racing ahead too. It's about microchip wristbands. Microchip wristband becomes a theme park essential for a technology section. At Precision Dynamics, what started out as a simple hospital ID product has become a high-tech admission pass, a cashless debit card, a hotel, a hotel room key, and a way to unite uh, lost children with parents. 2nd of May by Hugo Martin. In a nondescript manufacturing plant in a quiet San Fernando cul-de-sac, a khaki green machine the size of a buffet table that sucks in bright pink ribbon and spits out one of the hottest features in theme parks. Here, Precision Dynamic Core, a company that began making plastic hospital wristbands out of a Burbank garage more than 50 years ago, has become the nation's top producer of a new microchip-enhanced wristband for amusement parks, concerts, resorts and gyms. And I'll read where it goes on from there because you know where it's going all, don't you? Read an article about wireless wristbands and how they're getting used to all these amusement and theme parks. But uh, it says here, the company leaders envision a future when they can expand the technology for use in border security and hospital identification, among other purposes. I should really add to this, too, that I read an article a while back there where they'd used one of these types of wristbands with microchip built in on patients who had the flu shot about two years ago in one of the U.S. states. It was a trial to see how they would go in a pandemic scenario. But this could be used for anything, couldn't it? Anything. One day you'll have to have one of these chips either in you or on you before you can get into a grocery store. Alarms will go off and guards will come up and grab you. Or you haven't had all your shots, have you? And they'll lock you up. But yesterday, too, I mentioned about the smart meters. They're putting them in across Canada already. I got one put in a week or so ago. Uh, not by choice, they just come and do it. We have a lot of choices in democratic countries like Canada. But uh, this is from the Mail Online to do with the smart meters in Britain. And they go further in telling you uh, what they're really for. I got the propaganda piece in Canada saying, well, it'll help you watch how much energy you're using. Here's the real reason here. Mail Online, £500 it costs, smart meter uh, for all, which could let energy firms cap use in homes. November the 30th, 2009. Smart meters for gas and electricity are set to be approved for installation across the country in a huge project that could cost homes and businesses more than £500 each. That'll be on top of the £40,000 each family is to pay now for the bailing out the banks. I've just reported in the papers today. The meters are being presented as the key to doing away with estimated bills and encouraging families to cut down on their energy use by showing them how much they're using. The huge scheme is to be unveiled by Climate Change Secretary Ed Miliband. Climate Change Secretary. Can you believe you've actually got a Climate Change Secretary? A belief system. You're a priest on the government. eh? As part of a package of measures to cut the nation's carbon footprint. 
ahead of the Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. So don't bother waiting. However, the cost of the installation has been estimated by the government at £9 billion, while some analysts suggest the figure will be as high as £13.4 billion. Consumer groups fear that the major part of this bill will be passed on to householders and could add up to £515 per family over a 10-year period. Smart meters to be installed by 2020, that's how long it's going to take them over there, will allow power giants to read meters remotely, most likely via link to the mobile phone network. What's well, two methods according to the pamphlet that left me? Uh, it says here, one's broadband across your electric wires and one's is FM. It will also allow companies to charge more during peak times. The meters could also be used in, to ration supplies across the network or cap electricity use in particular households to a certain threshold. They can turn you off. But what's going to come in as you prepay, according to uh, your means, as, as Lenin would say? Everyone gets uh, paid according to their means, meaning what level of society, how, how, how essential to society are you? That's really what it means. That's what the, that's what the means test means. <laughs> but uh, eventually, if you, you pay in advance, if you go over that, they'll simply cut you off remotely. And as people get poorer and poorer, you can use more and more electricity. At least you'll know how much you're using. That's awfully good, awful nice of them, isn't it? They've already put them across most of Canada, and so now they're doing it in Britain and elsewhere across the planet. From Hamish, myself, and to your Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.